It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and today we meet Peg McManus and what a fantastic character she is. I really want to get married and have children and that would have been my, and fall in love and live happily ever after. So I met loads of fellas. Did you? I'm your load. <laughs> I don't know what I had. But I well, I can them. see what if you had what you have now back then, then I can see. I have to say, there's a certain charm, certain charm, fatal charm. Yes, <laughs> that was Peg McManus there, and you'll hear much more from her later. She's written a memoir, and she's in her eighties, so she has a lot to talk about. But first, wanted to bring you just a little bit of that World Cup story. Yesterday, Ireland manager Vera Pau did a press conference with Katie McCabe, the team captain. And as you know, the team are heading out shortly to Australia to their base in Brisbane for the World Cup. But that historic moment in Irish sport is being somewhat overshadowed by a 7,000 word article in The Athletic, a sports website owned by The New York Times. Now, in the article, they have quotes from four ex-Houston Dash players, that's the American team Pau used to coach, and three former staff members who spoke to The Athletic about Pau's alleged controlling training methods, comments about players' weight and eating habits and alleged uh, aggressive behaviour. And also in the article is Pau herself denying those allegations very strongly, as she did on this podcast a few weeks ago. I'm going to play you a bit from that. It's such rubbish. It's such the opposite of who I am. Um, so it makes me so angry. It's just absolutely nonsense. And um, yeah, we, we push it till after the World Cup because the World Cup needs my attention now. And um, after the World Cup, we're going to decide if we're going to uh, put in a lawsuit or not. Is that something that, you know, you feel tarnishes your reputation, even though you're very strongly denying the things that are in it? Yeah, of course, because it will always be on the Internet. Type my name in and you get it. Uh, you get it. And um, there's been companies who have methods to bring, bring that down on the list on Google. But you have to pick up a mortgage to do that. It's really cost like 70,000, 100,000 euros. To try and manage that online reputation. And do I need to pay the rest of my life for a few lunatics who bring lies out, who think that they are okay, and nobody ever asks me? Mm. Yeah, I'm not going to ruin my life because of two people who bring out lies. I just don't do it. And I'm I'm sorry, maybe I'm, I'm the Dutch directness, but I'm not doing that. I don't let it happen. Wrong person. They've chosen the wrong person, really. That was the voice of Vera Pau there, uh, strongly denying those allegations that um, are still casting a shadow over the Ireland's World Cup journey. And also today, Pau's American lawyer, Thomas Newkirk, was on the Claire Byrne show dismissing the allegations. And he had an interesting point of view where he said the allegations come from gender bias. He said... We address the manner in which gender bias causes athletes to report negative behaviour of a female coach differently than they would report it if she was a male. It causes us to react differently to a female athlete who is reporting this behaviour than we would react if it was a male athlete reporting it. And you can make of that what you will, but it's an interesting perspective. And obviously none of this is good for a team about to head off to the World Cup. So we're going to keep an eye on that story. Katie McCabe, the captain, was clearly frustrated yesterday at the press conference when she said sarcastically to reporters it's been great talking to you about the World Cup really appreciate it she did pledge her support for POW but this cloud hanging over them and these questions are really not what a team wants or needs especially 
at this time. So we'll see how that develops. In happier World Cup news, we have found out that Zrazi, those great musical women, have come up with a World Cup tune for uh, the women's team. And you might remember Zrazi are the women behind the song Watch Your House, Ooh Ah, Paul McGrath, which uh, you'll remember from Italia 90. And now they've come up with a song called Come On Ireland, Brackets giving us the right to dream, close brackets. The new single features a sample from the speech made by President Michael D. Higgins on St. Patrick's Day this year and also features vlogger Siobhan Ahern, twin sister of Ireland International, Ruesha Littlejohn. And here's a little clip of it for you. Oh, that might be what you'll be singing now with the women all away. So well done to Zrazi for coming up with the tune. Uh, and you might be singing it tonight because, of course, Vera Powell's side face France tonight at Tala Stadium. It's at, on at 8 p.m. Uh, and this is their final friendly outing before they travel to their World Cup base camp in Australia. The game kicks off in Tala Stadium, as I said, at 8 p.m. And it's going to be broadcast live on RTE2 from 7 30 p.m. So whatever happens, let's wish the women the best of luck tonight and, of course, for their World Cup journey. Now, we have a very interesting character on for you today. Her name is Peg McManus, and she's a bit of an unforgettable Dublin character, I would say. She's written a memoir called I Will Be Good, and it's a memoir of a 1940s childhood recounted with candour and wit and describing her early years in the last of the city's tenements under the shadow of the Second World War. Even in the midst of sorrow, as the ravages of poverty and tuberculosis prevailed, there was always singing and laughter. Peg remembers happy family gatherings in their tenement rooms before their way of life was shattered when the slums were cleared, making way for the migration of inner city families to Dublin's new suburbs. Peg is now in her 80s. The memoir is great and I had a brilliant conversation with her because she talks about class, about shame, about fighting social prejudice to become one of Ireland's foremost campaigners for educational reform. But she also had a quiet sorrow, as many women did back then, uh, a story that sort of cast a bit of a shadow on her whole life, but which couldn't be hidden forever. And I think you're going to really appreciate hearing about that. It's She's a really inspiring person and she's been through a lot, but she's also great fun. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. So here she is, Peg McManus. Peg McManus, you're very welcome to the Women's Podcast. Thank you very much for coming in to us. Take us back to 1940s Dublin then. Yes. Tell people what that was like. We hear about tenement life and it's it's really fascinating, but you were there, you I lived was, it. Yeah. Now, you know, part when I, I, I when I was writing the member, I discovered it's fragments that I can see. I visually can see fragments and the rest you kind of fill in. And I, well, of course, I was there till I was about five. So I vividly remember the room that we were in. I absolutely, I can, I can even smell it. You know, that thing that children have, I think. Um, I feel a bit sad. For some reason, I feel sad. Um, not because I don't think children understand deprivation or they understand. They don't. Mm-hmm. They don't have a sense of that. But I remember the room. It was, um, my granny had a shop below. So it was, there was a, a hall door, remember, the light above it, the fan light. There was a long hall. There were two steps down, uh, uh, two steps down and one step up into the yard where the toilet was. Below it, there was a cellar where people had lived but didn't live when I was there. And then we went up one flight of stairs and I remember the landing window and another flight of stairs and we lived into the right. And the room was lit by gas mantles and in the in the evening and there was an oil lamp and there was a big fireplace. Now when I think of my mother and there was a bucket for your wee because where were we going? And there was a chest I think they kept maybe bedclothes or something in it. Now, where food was kept, I do. They shopped all the time, if you wanted. And then there was a window and a bed. And my 
parents slept at the top of the bed and Bridie and I slept at the bottom. And then there was kind of a lean-to where there was a cot where my brother slept. All in the one room? All in the one room. And then there was a, a, a table where we sat on the bed, Bridie and I, and my parents had two chairs. And I was just thinking of my mother in that room with an open fire. There were no fire guards. Can you imagine? And is that why you were sad? When I was thinking about I'm sad for my mum. Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm not sad for myself. Mm. Yeah. The struggle. Yeah. The day-to-day life of that. The absolute every but, grind. But they weren't as miserable as I see some people now <laughs> in absolute affluence. <laughs> yeah. I know that's terrible. But I think does prosperity bring people great happiness? Not necessarily. I don't know. I think it brings some good things, but it also oh, doesn't mean that you're guaranteed a happy life. It's a big lie, I think. No. Because you can be you can be poor and happy. But obviously the, the idea is we want everyone to have a bit of equal opportunity. I think when people are poor and living in the circumstances that you grew up in, it's it's the opportunities are denied them and the judgment of people, you know. It's the, the judgment. The classism and all that kind of thing. I think the judgment was really there's something shameful about poverty. That is the awful thing. I I really think that is it. I thought that there was something shameful about who I was and poverty. Mm. And if I could only get... I remember, actually, we moved out to Cabral. And my now age were you five, was it? Yeah. Now, I didn't know when I was in North King Street, I mean, about poverty, and I didn't know about anything like that. But I remember very quickly getting the message when we went out to Cabra that this was a wild place. And I remember my dad saying, Should we get our own house? We won't belong here. This is just going to be a stop. And we were moving on. So this is when, like, the corporation was clearing out all the tenements, weren't they, in the slums? That's right. And they were moving everyone into the suburbs and That's right. building new places for people to live. But you you talk about how these were basically creating ghettos in a way. They did, but it was unintentional and seriously. And in fairness, when you see what's happening now, it was a fantastic move. Tell me about the poverty, though, in terms of your... There was great gatherings in the tenements and in your family. There was music, there was stories. There was a richness to it as well as the deprivation. Yeah, I think so. I mean, people would say, listen, would you ever give us a cup of sugar till tomorrow? Or um, a loan of a half crown. um, And I give it to you back, you know, when I get paid. And people gave... There was a woman in our house and she... She was blind. Everybody gave her a dinner. You know, there was that. Now they fought, of course, like (laughs) people did. But funny, there was a generosity to it. And I remember talking to this man. He was quite wealthy and I was talking about, on my high horse, about equal distribution. And he said, it's very very easy to uh, be giving and generous when you have nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But you get something. (laughs) You want to hold on to it. Yeah. And also talking about the the deprivation and the the sorrow, your mother lost two children living in the tenements. Christopher Christopher died a fortnight after coming home and Anne only lived for six months. So that was also what she was having to deal with. Oh, I was just thinking, I think maybe the sadness that I did carry came from that. And but the other thing, TB was rampant. You know, you'd see mothers, the dispensary, you had to go to the dispensary with your child and and the dread of TB. Mm. And the children died. But the other thing, though, there was a kind of acceptance of death. Yeah. Maybe it was fatalistic, I don't know. But like... The man above us, there was a man lived up, uh, Tommy, and we heard it thud on the ceiling, and it was Tommy dropped dead. Oh, Jesus. And he was going out to work. He lived alone, but but 
the neighbors, they got coffin and they got together and they made food and they had bottles of stout and, you know, they they were sitting around saying the rosary and the kids were all crawling around the floor and up looking into the coffin and put their hands, the corpse and they were all singing songs and then, I mean, it was like an, a natural part of life. Mm. And people understood that they died. But people do not understand that now. They get a terrible shock when they die. <laughs> if you know, the sense. It was more part of life than you it feel was. it is now. It, yeah. it has been removed from, and, and that is, that's awful. And we're talking about a time as well of big families, right? Yes. Your mother was uh, had eleven pregnancies, I think, That's all right. together. Yes. I mean, it's just when you think about it now, the toll that would take on on their body. On their body. And she had her last uh, child of forty-one, and it That's was kind right. of almost a shame and an embarrassment. Oh, she was so embarrassed. I always remember she walked around with a towel in front of her bump. And she used to say, how could this have happened at my age? And Presumably you know, she knew how it happened, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she so just didn't think it would happen like that. It was, yeah, I know. It's yeah, terrible, isn't it? I, I, that's exactly it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back and your book touches a lot on on that kind of the, how, how controlled the country was by the Catholic Church. It was. How women like your mother didn't have contraception, how there was all that shame and guilt around sexuality and stuff. Yes. Tell us about that time because there was a play, The Rose Tattoo, that you mentioned in the That's book. That's right. I, I remember this. It was this, in the PN and the Pike Theatre. Yeah. We, had, we were all going to see it because it was supposed to be kind of... Risque. Risque. Or, dirty. You know, dirty. Oh, God, be anything that, and we were on the Legion of Mary, that particular group. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let's go and look at this terrible play. I mean, so, just to see what it's about. <laughs> yeah, just to see, because the country was almost in a vice-like grip and everything was a sin, everything. They were like, I think they had the Catholic Brigade or something. They were the moral keepers. And, yeah, the moral um, police. The moral police. And um, and she did challenge me. She said to me, I think it was the first time I ever stood up myself. She said, um, I heard you're going to that terrible play. And she said, I said, yes. She said, you're not to go. And I said to her, well, I, I could do what I like when I leave work. Absolutely. She said, are you reprimanding me? I said, yeah. <laughs> I was shaking. Oh, I say you were. <laughs> Tell me about uh, leaving school at 14, which again was very normal at the time. Oh, yes. Really not strange. Yeah. You would be stranger if you'd have stayed on, really. Oh, no, it? very much so. Um, we had one girl in Cabra and she was known as the girl who went to college. You're joking. I, yeah. The girl. And she was ostracised. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it's so funny, isn't it? Yeah. But did you have any feeling of wanting to stick to your education? Oh, were you I did. You wanted to get going with work? No, you did. Yes, yeah. but I being hard of hearing affected me profoundly. Yeah, we haven't talked about that. So growing up, you were yeah. hard of hearing. So you had that added challenge on your I, life I as had, well. And I think that's how I developed. I couldn't describe that room. So that's probably why your other senses were yeah, more acute. Yeah, I really do think that's what it mm. was. But I wanted to, but I'd been out of school for so long. I had, I had all kinds of childhood elements. Mm. I did want to stay in school. And so my father uh, said, okay, apply for the corporation scholarship. And there was algebra, it was on it. I didn't, I, I still don't know exactly know what it was. But anyway, he said, oh, don't worry about that. Your uncle Paddy will teach you. He knows algebra in two weeks. Okay, that was ambitious. So that, that, <laughs> that, it didn't happen. Yeah. So I left school. The first job I went to was a hat factory. <laughs> I think I Where was that? It was down off the cave. It's called Jonathan Richards and Company. So they made army hats and policemen's hats. And it was piecework. Work was lined up. And we had to press the seams on the hats and pass them down the line. And every time you get rid of a big pile, another pile would come. 
and we danced with great joy and delight in that morning and then collapsed on the way home. <laughs> Let's talk about love and sex and oh, all of that thing. That, should we? Yes, we should. Um, as a teenager, was it, it was kind of like you wanted to find love and it was almost like a solution. It was going to fix everything and it was going to make your life right. And tell us about that because yeah. you met Alex then in Glasgow. Yeah. yeah, I genuinely did think and wanted and like even despite what we could see around us of marriage and, and I really want to get married and have children and that would have been my and fall in love and live happily ever after. <laughs> so I met loads of fellas. I'm Did you? Loads. <laughs> I don't know what I had, but I Well, I can them. see what if you had what you have now back then, then I can see, I have to say, there's a certain charm. Certain charm. Fatal charm, yes. one would say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had loads of dates and loads of fellas. And, um, but I mean, the notion of having sex was absolutely not on the cards. The terror of it. Mm. And people used to send, don't come here if you're like that. If you're like that. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be anything as, you know, don't come, or don't, you be careful. You mind yourself. Don't let anything happen to you. Right. That was um, the constant message. Like, I remember that you were told, hold the bone and the dog will follow. Okay. What did they mean by that? Keep your virginity, I imagine. Hold if you know the what bone I mean. and the dog don't will give follow. The, if oh, you the don't dog give being in the too man. Quickly, yes, yes, yeah, no. Jeez, what an image! I've never heard that in my life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought I've heard a lot of things. Hold the bone, and, and the, dog the dog will, will follow. follow. Yes, I know. It gives such a magnificent image. But the, those were the messages you were getting, and that was the constant feeling oh, of uh, yeah. You know, and the other thing was have respect for yourself, and have respect for yourself had so much underlying kind of sense. And I always thought that if you had a sexual feeling, that was not having respect for yourself. Yeah. I genuinely did. It took me ages to figure that out. How long did it take, Peg? Till now. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about going to Glasgow and Alex, right? Oh. Because this is a, it leads to a massive thing in your life and in the book that sort of influences the rest of your life oh, and casts a kind of shadow, as you call it, over even oh. your marriage later on and everything like that. Oh, absolutely, it did. Because um, you did fall in love, right? I did. Uh, well, I suppose maybe we were truly honest. I was in love with being in love, if yeah, you can, you know. But common I thing. thought that was, oh, I could see the whole world opening up. And, oh, it was such... You were in Glasgow, right? I was in Glasgow and Alex was, uh, he was much more educated than I was. And he, he wasn't a bad guy. Um, but he introduced me to art and jazz. He loved jazz. So I ever since loved. Um, jazz and all kinds of things that I'd never mm -hmm. and he he read a lot and I was very well read so we yes I really enjoyed it and, and so did he mm. and um, and then all his he went to Stowe College in Glasgow he was studying and so he had all these pals and I, I went away along with all these pads. They thought I was gorgeous and I thought I was magnificent. <laughs> I think I said in the book, the brief mad dance of a firefly. Oh, that's gorgeous. <laughs> and and uh, you got engaged, right? Quickly. Oh, I did. So it all happened very quickly. It was very a whirlwind drama. Yes, we met and then uh, he came back to Ireland. He asked my dad. And my dad was very impressed with him. Because um, my father was quite well educated because he he stayed in school so he was 18 and for that time, yeah. that was. And um, so then we went back and we met his mother in Portsmouth and his sister Caroline. I don't know that they were very happy. <laughs> <laughs> but he he thought was moving too quickly because he actually wrote you a letter saying could we postpone the wedding? Yes. Because his mother had had, had regretted she, getting married so exactly. quickly and then... 
you know, she wanted him to avoid that. Exactly. Uh, thing. Yes. Yeah. So was that must have been upsetting, but to to sort of have that was that a bit of a pin in the whole thing? Well, it was. I kind of told everybody in work I was getting okay. married, and okay. I was so. Then I just said, "Look, I'm getting married in Glasgow." Right. So you did continue the relationship. Oh yes. Oh yeah. That's. And then you got pregnant. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. So you were only what twenty one or something yeah. like that at that yeah. age. Um, yeah. That must have been given the time again and all the things we've spoken about getting pregnant when you weren't married. Oh, the horror of it! And you see, I had when I was in Dublin, I'd worked in the Legion of Mary, so I'd been working on street rescue. I'd seen what happened to people. Um, but apart, apart from anything else. I've seen what happened to people around me. They suddenly disappeared and were never seen again because people who got pregnant. They never, and I got pregnant. And then Alex, you see, he was studying in college and then he did practically went on the boat. He was in the Antarctic and then he come back to study. So he had left and we'd said, look, I, well, I said, we'll have a little break because I was, Demented. And um, he went, he left and he didn't tell me. And, Jesus. And um, all the friends were gone back to sea. And I was living with uh, his friend's fiance, and she went back to uh, I forget where she lived in England. So I was left. You were on your own. I was, oh my God. Oh, it was just horrendous. So I had to leave that room where we were because Patricia was gone. And I went to, I knew the priests and and they were good. I, mm. I mean, I don't want to paint all religious black because they weren't. No, no, there was very good people. Um, and so he got me into this hostel and um, I stayed there and then I went into a home for a mother, A mother and baby home, mother essentially. Mother and baby, yeah. which was outside. Classical. Okay, and all this time you have obviously hadn't told your parents oh, or family no. what was going on. So you were really alone in this. Oh, and I, I did take an overdose. I did actually, um, and I quickly, I, maybe I drank water and made myself sick because as soon as I did it, I knew it was just not to be done. Mm. And you went to this mother and baby home and, and what were the nuns there and the people who were running it like? What, what was your experience? At lovely. Like we ran that home, basically, <laughs> and they just supervised. The inmates, sort of. We were the inmates, <laughs> yes, yeah. But you, yeah. you did everything, and yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I there was a shop there where people would buy cigarettes and sweets. Yeah, and I remember I ran the shop. All right. And so it feels like a very different experience to what we hear about, say, the mother and baby homes here, which were very authoritarian, where people were made to feel terrible about themselves and yes. you didn't have that sort of atmosphere then? No, we didn't. It was a different atmosphere? No, we didn't. Because you were respecting one another and the nuns were leaving you to, to your Mostly, own devices. unless you... I remember I got into trouble because uh, I was in a, 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 a dorm with four and then I made this great friend, Valerie. We were, she was about six foot two and I'm, you know, so the two of us used to walk <laughs> and we were forever swapping stories and... Uh, we ha you know, when you make a friend. And Valerie lived somewhere. She opened the upper echelons. And I used to go up and sleep in her room. And then they found out about Valerie. I got into trouble about that. But <laughs> mostly, and we swapped our dresses. We made maternity dresses. And we got bigger and smaller. We swapped them. <laughs> and we made layouts. But this was the saddest thing in a way. You knit a layer for your baby yeah. to give it. With a layer, the sort of a blankety thing? No, there were cardigans and Oh, yeah, and cardigans, right, and, yeah, yeah. And there was, um, I think there was little linen, beautiful little linen uh, gowns. And uh, then you would give them with the baby. Yeah. You know, that was your parting Gift. Yeah, so you'd send that with the baby going yeah. away and you'd, yeah. it's, it's so sad. I do, and then the other thing I was, now I'm puffing myself up, but um, I was quite popular, 
with them. And so I used to get the job of washing the baby and dressing him or her. <laughs> so you, you saw all these babies just and had to send them away and their their, their mothers wait, left behind. Yeah. Peg, awful, awful memories. You'd never forget that because no. the smell of, I mean, you're talking about senses. Like yes. You can almost feel the little head of the baby. And, That's it. And, and the bo- bodies. Of, you remember they used to have this um, cream for the baby's bottom. And then they'd talc about it. Yeah. And I can still can smell get that smell. I know. And did you feel that you were going to, you knew you were going to give up your baby or did you feel that it was a possibility you could keep her? Or oh, It was very, well, in the beginning, Alice and I did agree that we'd have Marie adopted. Um, and I think he probably was as devastated. You know, we, yeah. how do we know? Um, but anyway, Alex was gone and um, then I thought, yes, of course, when you have a baby and you look at I, I mean, there are no words to describe it. So I thought, no, I'm not. You changed your mind, basically, mm. when, when you actually had your baby in your arms. And I, I wrote to Alex's mother and she came down. And fairness to her, she said, this is my first grandchild. No, I don't know what happened but I came back to Ireland. I, I left the baby with somebody. But, but you went back to try and yeah. sort of tell your parents and hope that they might let you bring the baby back home? Was yeah. that the idea? But in fairness to them, no. I could see straight away. Were they shocked? Were they devastated? They, they were struggling themselves. Yeah, yeah. They had enough on their plate. And I, I said to myself, I'm not bringing her back to this, where in a sense I kind of ran away from. Um, so I decided then I would have her adopted. So you you signed the papers. And uh, yeah. Well, I was. Yeah, I did sign the papers, but it took. I think that might be in October, November, till January before it was fully. Mm. Um, and um, I had written then to the parents to ask for a photograph. And which they sent, but my parents didn't let me see it. What? No. I can understand. I know, but I can understand. They didn't want you to have that. If I saw that baby, you know. But the thing is, you were. it doesn't matter whether you saw it or not. It was in you anyway. That memory was never going to no. go. No, um, but you have to understand everybody's point of view. Seriously. I just feel that parents at that time and were put in an impossible position because they could see there was no unmarried mother's allowance. There was People were called bastards. Yeah. They were illegitimate. So why would they want their daughter to have to be subjected to all of that? Exactly. So in their in their world that they were living in, they were doing what was, what was the right for thing. Me. Exactly. Yeah. And it's over very well for us looking back now thinking, oh, that's very callous or Ex- why did they not show you the photo? Or, But, you know, it was a different, different it's world. A, you have to have, absolutely. Yeah. And when I think about my mother, I think she knew that all her life. Mm. Yeah. And we never talked about, can you imagine? Yeah, it's it's incredible. But again, doing that because it was going to be for too me. painful to bring it up and for yeah. to dredge it all up. So let's just bury it under the carpet, which not really knowing that that's not something you can do because these things will always come out in it, some way. Yeah. But yeah. in in her own way, she was trying to protect oh, you. Oh, I knew she totally yeah. felt of me. So tell me. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. About Paddy then, because you, you had having this kind of romance slightly when you were with Alex. There was exactly. a guy around I the periphery feel- <laughs> who fancied you as well. Very in demand, Peg, you were. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Terrible thing. Um, yes, um, when I got the letter from Alex, I hadn't. I'd been a really nice, good girl. Like going to a dance would have been considered not a good thing if you were engaged, right? Or even looking at somebody else would have been. Mm. You know, that was it. So I went out to a dance, and I met Paddy, and Paddy was very, very handsome and very. Uh, so he kept asking me up to dance, and I was very distracted by it. <laughs> <laughs> distracted, yeah. This is an awful thing that goes on the outside and the inside. They're too different. Um, but anyway, Paddy was very keen on me. Right. And he left us home. That was the thing. And he didn't have the courage to ask me, but he found out. I was 21, and he found out where I worked and he rang me up and I went over him. God, I don't know. Anyway. And you ended up marrying him. I ended up marrying him. And you had to, you were one of the women who had to leave their job to get, because they got married. Is that right? Yeah. Um, now, that wasn't, when I came back to Ireland, I went to work in Bush Radio mm. and I went to work in Players, Player Wills actually yeah, I was. Yeah, the cigarette yeah. factory. Was yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. You did have to leave. Yeah. And you got married. But you could come back at Christmas time when they were very <laughs> Oh, busy. they let you come back when they <laughs> yeah. really need Honest to God. But, I mean I haven't heard that one. Giving out for no, God's but sake. I'm giving, but I hadn't heard that one. Like I did not know. Oh, actually when we're very busy, we'll let the women back to <laughs> I do thought they gave me a great Well favor. yeah, that, no, that's yeah. But I'm looking back now in hindsight and I'm thinking, you absolute <laughs> chancers. Anyway, um, uh, but the thing was Breather was, my daughter was born at this time, and I asked the woman next door, would she mind her, you know, while I, well, I, after two days, I was devastated. I couldn't leave her. So I gave up the job. Ah, okay. Well, fair enough. Now, the thing about um, your daughter, Marie, uh, obviously you went on to have your chi- your chi- yeah. children with Paddy, but you talk about it as an unspoken shadow in your relationship. Paddy knew about Marie, knew that you had this daughter that was having living yeah. a life in Glasgow, but yeah. you never spoke about it again, no. the silence. Yes. I always felt guilty and ashamed about, you know. And, um, and Paddy himself, it was like as if, okay, that was done, let's bury it and get on. Don't ever speak about it. And if you don't speak about it, it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, that's probably not a good explanation. No, no, But it, it is. was there. And I was always afraid. It was like a stain. And you obviously told about her and what she would be doing and what yeah. her life was like. Funnily enough, I wasn't consumed. You know the way people used to say, I remember every yeah, birthday. Yeah. I didn't yeah, not everyone does the same thing though. It's different for everybody. It maybe is. that, maybe you not remembering every birthday and all that was your way of coping oh, as well. Do you know? I I think um, you have to get on I with your own life. Some kind of capacity to shove things right down. Yeah, to compartmentalize I, the things. I really think yeah. I had that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you really, your life kind of changed, I think. You talked about it earlier about getting into education and when your first child went to school yeah. and you got involved in the parents' associations. Oh, yes. We and that was up. a big change in your life. Yeah, yes, it was. Yes, it was the actual turning point. I got involved in the parents' association. We set up the, um, the school library. And one of the things I couldn't believe, they just let us. They gave <laughs> us the list of names. A friend of mine, I made such fantastic friends. And we visited all the parents and asked them would they be interested in uh, setting up a school rota to run the library. Right. And, um, and then I met people from all different backgrounds. Yeah. And that was one of the things about 
it being in Ireland, you know, class, they did not mix. There was very little mixing of the classes. But, but classes. in this, you know, we're meeting lots it of different types different of people. people yeah. from different. And then I met, uh, yeah, so I met a friend, a great friend, and um, she introduced me to counselling. Counselling. Yeah, and I remember the first time I went, it was in her house. And it was in Hoth. I remember looking down on the bay. And I was sitting in this place and... We sat around and and it was about the force. It was about listening, and everybody got five minutes to listen and feedback. And I was sitting listening, and you know people were. I listened to the woman, and I was dying to say to her, "What you should do is," <laughs> and then she starts to cry, and I was saying, "God bless it, that poor woman is so upset." <laughs> I remember thinking, if my mother was here, she would go mad washing your dirty linen in public, um, you know. But but that was a key moment for you because oh this God. set you off on a whole different idea. I mean, from your mother thinking this would be a terrible thing exactly. to do, you suddenly realised this was really important. Oh, I, you know, because my mother had TB yeah. and that was a secret. And there was drink taken in her house. Yeah. And that was kept secret. Right. So there was a lot of secrets. And here you are now in a space where you could talk about all of that and it felt good. Oh, it did. It did feel good, but I there was so much stuff came up. I, I remember writing and I remember saying it at the time. I feel as if I'm in a quarry digging with a teaspoonful. Because <laughs> every yeah. time it's something came up. Some other big lump came down. And it's on never top ending. Me. It was never And ending. you had one, uh, in one chapter, you talk about a mirror exercise, oh. which was part of your counselling, your training. Yes. And it was involving uh, standing naked in front of a mirror. Yes. So uh, tell us about that. Oh, what, what did you learn from standing naked looking at yourself? Don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> what did Paddy think about all this? I didn't tell him. <laughs> Fortunately, now we did eventually. We should say that you were Peggy growing up, not Peg. Oh, that's right. Tell us yeah. why you changed yeah. your name to Peg. Well, there was loads of reasons, but Peg, I love that name. But my mother was in good humour. She used to call me Peg, Peg. But when she was when I done something which I frequently did with very best, she said Peggy Dodo. <laughs> so I got Peg, and that tone of voice and. And I felt I'd be a different person. If you changed your name to Peg. Uh, yeah, and how did and, that work out? Oh, very well. <laughs> so once I became Peg, we celebrated that. <laughs> Paddy did. Probably sick of Peggy anyway. <laughs> and listen, we want to go back to Marie because yes. you went to decide to look for her and it turned out she'd been looking for you for seven, seven years, years yeah. um, which is sad really. But you did find each other. Tell us about that yes, moment. Yes, yeah. Um, well, my granddaughter was born, my other daughter. Because you had five kids with, with Paddy, is that that's right? Four. Four, I'm sorry. Yeah. Marie was five. Yeah. And I had, uh, my granddaughter was born and she really wasn't married. I mean, she was in a relationship. And what I had buried instantly rose to the surface. Okay. So I said to Paddy, we have to speak about this. I need to find Marie. And another friend of mine, Gabriel, who was in council, said, Peg, she became part of a movement called Cherish, anyway. Yes, amazing, she, amazing gr- group of people. Exactly. So I, uh, Paddy actually wrote away. We found the name of the Adoption Society. And within six weeks, <laughs> within crazy. six yeah. weeks, because there was a register in Edinburgh, so her name was Anna. And um, and did you, you what, tell us about the meeting then, tell us about how you... Oh, she was... Where did you go then? London. She was in London. And, um, you know, she brought me to the um, the Dorchester. Okay. And um, she was pregnant. But, my God, she was the absolute image of me. I couldn't believe it. I was looking at myself. I, I just cannot tell you what it was like. I can still see that image in my mind's eye now. And um, 
we were so, we have this very, we were very bossy, the two of us. <laughs> and what, you obviously had so many questions for her, what her life had been like and how well, she was. Well, funny thing, I didn't want her to move into a place like Cabra, but she did. But she was an only child, basically. And she was very, very clever. And she, you know, she became a lawyer. She was a lawyer when I met, yeah. And, and how um, did she feel about you giving her up and all of that? Well, you know, in the beginning, she did. She she said, eventually, how could anybody do that to their own child? So, but I mean, she, I, I was 84 this year and she came over with all the kids. Oh, to the book launch. Uh, yeah, she was there. And she is so, but she's, she rings me every, I'm going over to Greece. She has a house in Greece now. I'm going over in September. So how yeah. long have you had a relationship with her now, like? Uh, 30 years. So mm. you've had your daughter for 30 years? Yes. yes. And has the relationship blossomed and oh, grown in that time? But like, it was gradual. It took time. It took time. Yeah, yeah there's no happy ever after quickly. Maybe there are for some people. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that worked out and that, you know. And she has how many children then? She has uh, three children. Right. Just a great story, like, to have had that connection because so many people don't get to find their their children and they live with that loss forever. It's true. Um, Now, the book goes into many other things as well. Unfortunately, Paddy got ill and died and you had a new partner. You moved out to uh, North County Dublin, where you are now. Um, You've had a lot of sadness and loss, but... Writing this, what was it like? Was it cathartic writing yes. writing all about the thing? It was very painful, I have to say. It was. But it was cathartic. And it's almost, it's a kind of a search for me, a journey. And I suppose what I discovered is that it's good in everybody. You know, I would think of it like a divine spark. And I suppose I wrote it in the search for that. And that's why I was hoping to pass on to say my kids, you know, I didn't want to pass on to all my fears to the next generation. Mm. Um, It's a great motivation for writing. And I think um, for me, I think, older people writing their stories because we talk about this invisibility that happens when you get older. Yes. Have you felt that? And is that is it part of that? It's trying to say, I'm here. I had a life. Here's here's what I think about things. Here's how I experienced it. Is it a kind of rage against that invisibility? No. Okay. No, I never felt invisible. I have a terrible presence. I mean, it's it's. I think I think you're right though, because it's a decision, a choice, isn't it? You can sort of say, "I'm going yes. to just fade in," because that's what society expects of me. Well, I think that is absolutely, and I think that is true. That I do. That is true. Um, I think you make a choice. Now that doesn't mean you. And not you everybody don't. can make that choice. Well, I don't know. Well, it doesn't. I think it doesn't come easily to everybody. I think your personality means you're not going to just fade into the background, yeah, right? Yeah, but other well, people... I would like to die just that night peacefully. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, in terms of while you're living, you're not I going to know. just... I don't know. I've really pondered that question. Um, and maybe people don't ponder it. But it's one of the things I'd like to write about now. An alternative handbook for elders, not elderly. No. Uh, because elderly, when you're elderly... You're a herd. But when you get older, you're an elder. Um, and I'm, I'm, maybe I'm rebellious. May, I don't know what it is. There's no maybe about it. I would, say. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to read your handbook for elders. What? I think Cachette, your publisher, should get onto it straight away. <laughs> Time is of the essence. Get onto it now. It doesn't have to be that yeah. long. Are you implying <laughs> that I might die soon? Well, I'm just saying. Do you know what I mean? You know? Yeah. No, I know. Now, yeah. before you go, I have to tell you, you and I have something very important in common. Tell me. That we both play the ukulele. I don't <laughs> believe you. <laughs> and I'm raging because I meant to bring it in and get <gasps> you to give me a tune. Has that been a joy in your oh, life? Oh, I have to tell you. I was out, we, 
you know, I, my book's been launched, and so I'm a celebrity. They nearly lick me boots <laughs> at this stage. We, but, oh, it's such a joyful thing to do. And people, yes, I just think music, but the ukulele, because you don't have to be... Because anyone can do it. Anyone can do but it. But people are very snobby about the ukulele. It really annoys me. You know, they think it's like a you know, yeah. sort of a rubbish instrument, but oh, no. I love it. I tell you, it's it's you you really have to work at yeah. it. Now. They always start singing "When I'm Cleaning Windows" by George <laughs> Formby. It's very annoying. Like they think that's all they think about, and there's so much more to it, isn't there, Peg? Oh, absolutely. I've been. We. I was at a ukulele festival in Scary. Oh, I need to go to. A, there's a festival. Oh, you've no idea. Where are you learning it? I've just taught myself. Actually, I'm self-taught oh. on the ukulele. Where do you live? <laughs> North Strand. Oh well, uh, Scaries. Right, I can yeah. get to Scaries. But yeah. um, they had a fe- and they had one a group from Paris, oh, and everybody fancy. in Scaries put them up. They have fantastic, and there's ukulele festival in Dunleary. Okay, right. Well, I'm going to get go to all the festivals, and the next time I see you, will be oh, bring me definitely. Exactly, yeah, Peg. Yeah. It's been absolutely beautiful talking to you. The book is amazing. I will be good, but maybe it's not really good that you're trying to be. Maybe it's just trying to get in touch with yourself in a, in a deep way. I think that's what your journey has been. I think because so. you took up meditation, you went on those Buddhist sort of retreats. And that's right. You yeah. did all of that journey, which is unexpected and probably something. You took these opportunities that were presented to you in, t- in trying to find yourself and yes. go deeper into yourself. Yes. And that is including in the ukulele as well. I feel like that's part of oh, it. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, it's such a magnificent magic thing. So thank you for sharing it with us and I I would urge everyone to read it. It's called I Will Be Good and thank you. You're a bit of a legend, Peg McManus. Thank you. That was Peg McManus there, a ukulele lover after my own heart and her book is called I Will Be Good and it's a great story well told. That's it from us. Contact the podcast on social at IT Women's Podcast or on email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com it's produced by Suzanne Brennan and me, Roshi Ningle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.